I want to encourage you when you come to assemble with the body to worship and to praise and study God's word, you should bring something with you. What should you bring with you? Your Bible. Bring your Bible. Bring your Bible. Yeah, but pastor, I have a Bible on my smartphone. You also have distractions on your smartphone. Bring your Bible. Next week we'll have Bible check. First Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes this letter. It's an apologetic, it's a defense, it's a rationale for the truth of the resurrection. We're just going to look at quickly at the verse 10 verses, and then we're going to focus on verses 7 through 10 at the end of the, that section. So look with me. Paul says, now brothers, I want to remind you. Do we need reminders? All the time. That's why we come to the table week after week after week. Why? Because it's a reminder. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Church, that's the word of God. Amen? Who of us hasn't faced a lost cause, a hopeless situation? We all have. Lost causes are real, aren't they? Yes. The sportscaster said that the game is unwinnable. We all know that. The doctor said the patient is terminal or the disease is incurable. The marriage counselor said the relationship is irreconcilable. The teacher said the student was unteachable. In each case, every one of these cases, the outcome seemed absolutely predictable. Each is an example of a hopeless situation. Each case seemed over, dead, final, the end. We all understand what it means to face hopeless situations. A similar situation existed early in the first century. A 33-year-old religious leader was dead. After a public execution with many, many witnesses, the body of this young Jewish hope had been disposed of by the authorities 
according to the burial customs of the day. All that remained was to make sure that the grave robbers didn't destroy and didn't steal and disrupt the final resting place of this political nightmare. They posted a Roman guard at the burial site. The officials seemed to have sealed the fate of the Christian cause. Dead messiahs don't leave much of an inheritance, do they? But then the unexpected happened. Not even his own disciples expected this. Three days later, unexplainable events began to occur. Rumors began to fly that the grave was empty. A growing number of people claimed to have seen this man who had been executed between two criminals. This dead issue was not only alive, but he had become an irrepressible source of everlasting life. And he became the leader of what turned out to be an irrepressible cause. In our passage in 1 Corinthians, verses 7 through 10, we learn how the power of this resurrection represents the hope for other lost causes, for other dead issues. Paul, in his own testimony, speaks about the fact that he was a lost cause. He was hopeless. Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, that which is impossible for man is possible with who? It's possible with God. So many times we leave God out of the equation. So many times we lean on our own understanding, our own efforts, our own strength. That which is impossible with God, with man, is possible with God. Amen. The Apostle Paul himself, in writing about the resurrected Christ, also wrote about his own resurrection in those verses. His resurrection from spiritual death. The Bible tells us we're all dead in our sins and transgressions. We're all dead. We're all lost. We're all hopeless. We're born that way. That's why we need to be born again, spiritually speaking. Paul's own testimony is that the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is a life-changing power. But not only that, it's an energizing power. And it's also an available power. Resurrection power is life-changing. It's life-changing. Is there anyone who doesn't want or need to be changed for the better? Are you absolutely satisfied and happy with where you are? No, we all want to. We ought to hunger. We hunger for being better. Do we not? Is that a fair statement? Yes. The whole industry has risen around this. It's called the self-help industry. People read books, they go to seminars, they watch tape series and listen to CDs, all in an effort to somehow get the secret <laughs> to being better. The power of the resurrection to change lives is seen in its ability to change the most unlikely people. 
Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle. You have to appreciate this. Saul was the most unlikely person to become a Christian. Though he was a very religious man, to the Christians of his day, he was the last person they would ever expect who would join the church. You look at his record. While the early apostles, Peter, James, John, and the others were doing everything they could to tell the world that Jesus had risen from the dead, Saul was doing everything he could to shut them up. You read in the book of Acts that before he was converted, Saul was, if not one of, he was the worst and the greatest of all threats to the early church. He hated Christians with a passion. I've known people like that. Hated Christians with a passion. He hunted Christians. He harmed them by subjecting them to arrest, imprisonment, even death. You read his own testimony in verse 9 of our passage. He said, I persecuted the church of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, I was once a blasphemer. I was a persecutor and a violent man. And he goes on to say, the worst of sinners. The point being, no one could get worse than Saul of Tarsus. He was the worst of sinners. And with that background in mind, just think, his experience should be a reminder that no one is too bad to be changed by the Lord. No one is too bad to be changed by the Lord. No one is too arrogant. No one is too alcoholic. No one is too lustful. No one is too homosexual, too spiritually antagonistic to be raised from spiritual death. What about you? Or what about somebody you know? Are you or they worse than Saul of Tarsus? Hardly. Hardly. Are you or they literally uh, less likely to receive Jesus and to be changed from chief persecutor to chief promoter? Jeremiah says, nothing is too hard for the Lord. He can change anybody. He can change anybody. I had the privilege this week of leading a hard-hearted man to Jesus Christ. I witnessed to him for 15 years. He was at the sunrise service this morning, weeping, praising God, sitting in the front row. God can change anybody, anybody. If he can change Saul of Tarsus, he can change anybody. Not only is the power of the resurrection life changing, but that same power is also energizing. You may be changed, but you still need the power to live and to love and to work as unto the Lord. 
Every Christian knows what it's like to be bereft of God's power in their life and to function just in your own strength and how frustrating it is. That's why the Apostle Paul tells us, be being kept filled with the Holy Spirit. We need His power. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is an energizing power. It energizes our life. We have power to live this life. In verse 10 of our passage, a thoughtful look at that verse makes it clear that Paul was talking about more than just a big idea, a big philosophy. No, there was something else that was the motivation of his life, something else motivating his life. It's clear that as far as he was concerned, he'd not changed himself from being the chief persecutor to the chief promoter of the Christian faith. Neither had he merely put out more effort than all the other apostles before him. No, he declared that it was God at work in him that made the difference. God at work. If you are a Christian, truly, you have God living in you. The Bible tells us that by the Holy Spirit. And he is there to energize and empower and enable us to do the very things that God wants us to do. Paul would later write to the Philippian believers. He would tell them that it's the Spirit of God who is at work in them to make it possible for them and for us to work hard in doing what his desire is. Paul wasn't experiencing the power of Christ's resurrection merely to make a name for himself or to make a lot of money. No, he experienced this spiritual enabling in the course of doing what God called him to do. It requires faith that you would believe. And as you believe, you take a step of faith. And when you take that step of faith, God's power meets you at that second, meets you right there. Right, Michelle? You know that, huh? Yes. God's power meets you right when you need it. He doesn't want you just to stand there and say, okay, empower me, empower me, empower me. That doesn't require faith, does it? What requires faith is you take that step, that step of obedience, the step of what he calls you to. As you take that step, his power is there. That's what Paul is telling us. Amen, church? Amen. He experienced this spiritual enabling, again, in the course, in the course of what God wanted him to do. That's why he could say later on, he says, I can do everything, everything through what? Christ who gives me the strength to do it. He knows that. And as you continue to walk in faith, you continue to trust him and to take those steps of faith when you see no possible way it's going to happen, change, you know that his power is there and he'll meet you every single time. And you too with Paul will say, I can do everything he calls me to do. I can be what he calls me to be because he gives me the strength to do it. Hallelujah. In Romans chapter 8 verse 11, he says much the same thing, different words. He says, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. He will energize these mortal bodies, these flabby, lazy bodies. <laughs> he energizes us. Somebody say hallelujah. hallelujah. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. 
And this resurrection power is available. It's available. It's right there for the taking. It's right there for the receiving. Notice what he calls it, though. In verse 10, he calls it grace. It's grace. That's just not a woman's name. It's a word that describes the work and the power of the Spirit of God in a person's life. It's grace. But why grace? Why not just refer to the power of the Spirit of God directly? I think the meaning of the word helps us to see why. In a general sense, the word grace we know means an undeserved expression of kindness. Undeserved expression of kindness. All of us, at some point, have experienced somebody's graciousness to us, haven't we? Undeserved. People have gone out of their way, above and beyond, to help us. We say to them what? Thank you. Thank you. I could never have done this without you. Thank you. I appreciate what you've done for me. I appreciate your graciousness. And our response includes, I could never repay you if there's anything that I could do forever for you. Please don't hesitate to call me. Do we say, do we say things like that? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Grace is any expression of kindness. Any expression of the kindness of God that is given to those who do not deserve it. I've had people tell me over the years, I've done this for God. I've done that for God. I've done this for God. And he hasn't done anything for me. I said, well, that relieves God of that responsibility, doesn't it? No, we don't deserve anything. If we deserved anything, it's what? Truly hell. But he's been gracious and merciful and compassionate towards us. You see, this grace is not only the initial grace of salvation, but every other expression of undeserved help that we ever, ever receive from the Lord. Don't let that point escape you. This is what, this is what makes the kind of life-changing, life-energizing power that Paul experienced available to all of us as well. The fact that we don't deserve it is the very thing that qualifies us for it. If you think you deserve it, it's no longer grace. But the fact that we realize I don't deserve it, I can't qualify for it, I'm not good enough for it, the very fact brings grace to us. And it is so on this unmerited basis that all of us can come to the Lord to receive the help he loves to give. God loves to give help. How many parents do we have here? Do you love to help your children? Of course. Oh, yes. Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> For the most part, we love to help our kids. We see them in need. They come to say, Mommy, Daddy, help me. Help me. I need your help. All the time. Our Heavenly Father loves to help us. Amen. He loves to help us. The forgiving, changing, energizing help no one has any inherent right to claim. 
The writer to the Hebrews puts it this way. Let us approach the throne of wrath with confidence. No? Did I misread that? Let us approach the throne of what? Grace. And come with what? Come with confidence. Let's approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may re receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So do we want to become active, obedient children of God, faithful servants of his? Yes. Do we want to live and work and love as unto him? Yes. And we can do so only by what? The grace of God. I can only love my wife by the grace of God. By the grace of God. Love her the way she deserves to be loved. I can only fulfill my role and my calling as a pastor only by the grace of God. All of us, it's the same thing, the same truth. We need to see that we have to receive this grace. We have to receive it in the same way and from the same person as Paul did. <coughs> Paul didn't find it by going through some ritualistic practice. His mom and dad didn't get it for him. His rabbi and priest and pastor didn't get it for him. He didn't get it by performing religious works. As we study his experience, as described by his own letters, he shows that he received this by faith in Jesus Christ. Simply that. Yeah, but don't I have to do something? No. You just believe. You trust. You come with empty hands of faith. And you say, help me. Help me. Help me. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he says this. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by the faith of, in, by the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's our anthem. That's our testimony as Christians. I no longer live. Christ in me. It's Christ in me. He saved me. He lives in me by his spirit. He energizes my life. I trust him. He does for me what I could never do for myself. You see, it was faith. And that not of himself. Christ gave him the faith. He gave him the very faith to say that it was by the grace of God that he was what he was. It's the grace of God that was working so actively in him. If you don't know this grace, I urge you, just simply ask. Ask him. God, I'm needy. I need your help. I need your grace. And as you do, you'll find that the power which raised Jesus Christ from the dead really is a life-changing power. Amen. It really is an energizing power. 
It really is an available power. You'll find that doing the will of God, loving as he wants you to love, and being becoming a spiritually mature Christian is neither impossible nor is it a hopeless case. God works miracles. We go through, in our own human rationale, we go through all of our own human machinations to try to figure out how do I get from here to there. When God stands by, he says, are you done spinning your wheels yet? Do you want my help? Trust me. Trust me, he says. It is possible to the degree that you are open to that power that raised Jesus from the dead. You may say, well, I, I don't believe it enough to change me. My past has been too bad or too devastated. We all come from devastated past to one degree or another. Some people say, oh, man, you, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know my life. You don't know how bad I've been, what's going on, what's happened to me. My present is too lost in drugs. My present is too lost in alcohol. My present is too lost in pornography. My present is too lost in lust, in dishonesty, in laziness. I'm too proud. I take too many pills. I'm too afraid to take a stand for Jesus. You don't know how terrible my situation is oh really okay but once again that's the whole point that's the whole point we're talking about the grace of God a life-changing energizing and available force and power we're talking about the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead he promises to raise us up and to change us and to energize our lives that we might bring him glory. And you don't have to do it in your own strength. It's not a drudge. It's not, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> But you begin to realize this empowerment. You begin to realize you're living on a whole different plane because it's God who's at work in you. Hallelujah. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ, you say, well, I'm a Christian, but, you know, I, I dropped out. I, I tried Jesus. He didn't work for me. You don't just try Jesus. <laughs> you commit your life to him. You serve him. You walk with him faithfully through all circumstances. And he is going to test your faith. He's going to try your faith. But you can wait upon him. And you can realize his power in the midst of those tests and trials and challenges, and difficulties, and failures. Because he will lift you up. Amen. You trust him. Yes. You trust him. You go to bed at night, you lay your head on your pillow, and you say, I trust you. I trust you. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but I trust you. You wake up in the morning. I trust you. <laughs> I don't know what you have in store for me today, but I trust you. We trust him. You see, he's there to forgive. He's there to reconcile us. Reconcile us to himself. We've been estranged from him. 
Even if you profess to be a Christian and there's distance now, you know you're estranged from him. He's not estranged from you. He wants to reconcile you to himself. But you have to simply acknowledge to yourself and, of course, to God. Acknowledge that you are a sinner. That you're a liar, you're a thief, you're a murderer, you've murdered in your heart, you're an adulterer, you've lusted in your heart. You're an idolater. This is the hard truth. These are not nice words. We don't like these things. It's politically correct country we live in now. I talked to a man not too long ago about becoming a Christian. Try to witness to him. He says, oh, he says, uh, my wife's religious. I'm not. I said, does she go to church? Well, yeah, she goes to this religious science place. I said, they teach about sin there? Oh, no, we don't like that word. <laughs> you got to admit it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if you'll be honest, you'll admit your sin and guilt before a holy God and your own helplessness to do anything, anything to change or to improve your standing with God. You just have to come to that realization. It's not an excuse. It's reality. You need to face squarely the fact that a mortal, imperfect person cannot please an infinitely holy and perfect God. You just cannot do it. Your best will never be good enough to remove the debt of sin. I don't care how religious you are. I don't care how many good works you do. Never is it going to be enough. And God is waiting. He's calling on you. He's knocking at the door of your heart. You need a righteousness that comes from outside of yourself, not self-generated. A righteousness that comes from God himself. He gives us a free gift. You must acknowledge that Jesus' own death, life, death, and resurrection was for you. It was on your behalf. You must take it, receive it for yourself. It's easy to get lost in the crowd, but you have to come to terms yourself. He left heaven's glory, became a man for you. He kept all of God's commands for you. And if that weren't enough, he paid the penalty of sin for you. He died on a cross for you. And he rose from the grave to demonstrate that he had broken the power of sin and death and Satan and hell. He got the victory. It's by faith in Jesus and only faith in Jesus that you can realize freedom from the power of sin, freedom from the power of the devil. He has no place in your life, no claim on you any longer. Amen. Put your trust in him today. Put your trust in him today. Try him. Try him. Put your trust in him today. And you'll begin to experience for yourself the wonders of Christ's resurrection power. You'll have a new life. A new life. You'll be changed. The Bible tells us if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. A whole new life. When I became a Christian, a whole new life opened up to me. A whole new world, a whole new existence opened up to me. 
Church was fun. I didn't grow up that way. Church was boring. Now it's exciting to be around God's people. It's exciting, as Alan said, we testify, we share about what God has done in our lives. We confess our sins to one another. We love one another. We encourage one another. I'd never experienced that. The old has gone. The new has come. You'll have strength and power to live this new life. Resurrection power that's not of yourself. It's God supplied who lives in you. And you will say with the Apostle Paul and every spirit-filled Christian, you will rehearse this great word. Say it with me. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen? Amen. Amen. He is risen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful. We're thankful so much. We're thankful so much that you actually love us. As strange and weird and cantankerous as we can be, you love us. You gave your son for us. And thank you for opening our eyes and turning our hearts towards you. And thank you for granting us repentance and salvation. And thank you for your grace, this life-changing grace, this life-energizing grace, this available grace. Lord, I ask and pray that this, this day, that each person, Lord, in this room, would avail themselves of your grace. Each one, their confession to you, morning, noon, and night. I trust you. I trust you. I trust you. Thank you, Father. We love you today on Resurrection Sunday. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen.